Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we do ask that you would come and overshadow your people this morning by your spirit. Fill us up, uh, Lord, anew and afresh. And I pray that through your spirit, you would empower these words to be your words for your people and that you would open all of our ears to receive from you the good news, the gospel of the risen King Jesus. And so we commend ourselves to your love and care this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible, either on your phone or you'll find a pew Bible in front of you to Paul's first le letter to Timothy. Paul's first letter to Timothy. One of Paul's chief concerns in writing this letter to Timothy was to address those who were teaching, for Timothy to address those, or really even confront those who were teaching doctrine and behavior contrary to the gospel tradition that Paul had personally experienced, received from the Lord himself, and taught there in Ephesus at its founding. Only a few years earlier, uh, Paul had gathered together the elders of this church on his way through that region as he was going for the final time to Jerusalem before he would be imprisoned and sent to Rome. And this is what he says to them as it's recorded in Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. To draw away the disciples after them. So just imagine how fragile this little church must have seemed in those early years there in Ephesus, existing as a tiny community, as a tiny community facing significant external and internal pressures to draw them away from the truth of the gospel. And after 2,000 years of history, what the church in Ephesus experienced is true of each church in every age. Each church faces internal and external pressures to turn away from the truth of the gospel and its implications for our lives. This is as true today for us at Christ Church, a young upstart church here in Winston-Salem, as it is for the church in Ephesus, or as it was for the church in Ephesus. And while the pressures we experience today may differ from the ones they did then, Paul's antidote remains effective in addressing whatever it is that we face because Paul returns us as he returned Timothy again and again and again to the foundational truth of the gospel. You see this over and over again in this letter and in his letter to Titus and in his second letter to Timothy. Because it is only upon this truth, this truth that the, that the church can be built up, and it's only this truth that genuinely transforms our lives, our families, and our communities to be characterized by true life and flourishing, the life of the age to come, the life of God's new creation kingdom. And Paul reminds Timothy of this foundational truth of the gospel here in his first letter to him, in response to false teachings and misuses of the law that appeared in Ephesus. And from what we can discern from Paul's letter, false teachers sought to apply the restrictive function of the law to all people, to all people for both salvation, for both salvation 
and daily life, forbidding, as Paul makes explicit in chapter 4 of this letter, marriage and abstaining and requiring people to abstain from certain foods. Their emphasis on the law was accompanied likewise by a minimizing uh, and an obscuring of the place of faith and grace and the mercy of God in his redemptive work in this world and possibly even a devaluing of Christ's role himself. They supported their claims and practices, as Paul makes clear, by means of speculative interpretations of the Old Testament. Speculative interpretations of the Old Testament. And they fixated on what Paul calls silly myths and endless genealogies and debating about pointless meanings to words, just so fixated on these things. And in response to this young pastor there in Ephesus, Paul clearly and simply lays out the foundational truth of the gospel that we heard in our reading in verses 12 through 17. And he does so by using a literary device known as a chiasm. Now, don't let me lose you there by saying that. He uses a literary device known as a chiasm to make this plain and clear. But we'll just think of it today as a sandwich. More particularly, a Cuban sandwich for our purposes. And this is, how, this is how a chiasm works, okay? So on the ends, you have your two pieces of bread, the two halves of a Cuban loaf. And that's verse 12, where Paul expresses thanksgiving to Jesus for strengthening him for his service as an apostle. And then at the bottom, that bottom loaf, that bottom piece of bread, is where Paul erupts in doxology in verse 17, and then working our way in from both sides, we encounter mustard, right? Are we familiar with the Cuban? Mustard and cheese and pickles, all the good things that really set this sandwich apart. And this here for us is verses 13 through 14, where Paul expresses his personal experience, his personal experience of the grace and mercy of God that was given to him by Jesus Christ, by the King. And then in verse 16... Right? We're, we're working our way inward from both sides. Then verse 16, we see Paul's personal experience was intended by Jesus to be a demonstration, a display of his perfect patience, of Jesus's, King Jesus's perfect patience with Paul, and not only with Paul, but with all sinners. And then, at the center of the Cuban, we find wonderfully prepared pork tenderloin and smoked ham. This is the meat, the core, the center of the sandwich. And in this chiasm, this is verse 15, where we hear that foundational truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, King Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. You know, the emphasis of chiasms typically falls on what occurs in the center. Indeed, that is true here in our passage this morning it falls, the emphasis falls here in this meat portion of the Cuban. And so let's begin there. Look with me at verse 15. As we start here at the core with the meat and work our way out to the bread of this chiasm. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's another way of Paul the saying, you know, pay attention. This is really important. I'm telling you straightforward. You can put your full reliance upon this, and you can fully stake your life upon it. You can accept this as true. 
that Christ Jesus, King Jesus, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief, the principal. Here we see the foundational truth of the gospel clearly laid out, the good news that King Jesus, King of heaven and earth, came into his world that he created, taking on our human flesh, And King Jesus humbled himself in this way in order to save sinners. To save rebels who rebelled against his sovereign rule. Sinners like you and like me and like the person beside you in the pew. Yes, even the persons beside you in the pew. Jesus did this for them. And Paul is turning Timothy's attention back to the foundational truth of the gospel because all false teachings... All false gospels either contradict or obscure this core, central, meaty truth. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In Ephesus, these false teachers were contradicting and obscuring the truth of the gospel by using the law unlawfully. By making the law out to be a means of righteousness. Representing the law's standards as attainable apart from the grace and mercy offered to us by King Jesus himself. And so as a result, this false teaching was causing the church in Ephesus to misunderstand and ignore that God's moral demands and requirements are meant to lead us to Christ and to repentance. They're meant to lead us and make us fall upon the free grace that God offers us in his Son. And this is why in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes to that church saying, for by, you know this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not, of, not a result of abstaining from marriage, not a result of abstaining from certain foods. This is not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the foundational truth of the gospel. That King Jesus came into the world to save sinners when sinners could not save themselves. And this is what makes the news about King Jesus and his coming and his death and his resurrection and his ascension good news. That we cannot, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. However, Paul does not simply state this foundational truth of the gospel alone. He does not merely place the Cuban pork in front of us merely naked. No, he clothes it. He clothes this foundational truth of the gospel with his own personal experience of it. He's adding to the pork the pickles and cheese and the mustard that make the sandwich really pop. And so Paul provides his experience, his personal experience of mercy and grace, not to draw attention to himself, but to demonstrate that the mercy and grace of God that Jesus offers us is for everyone is for everyone, no matter how bad, no matter how evil or unthinkable your sin has been or is or will be, you can know that Jesus will have mercy on you. You can know that Jesus will have mercy on you because he has already had mercy on the worst, the chief, the principal sinner. Just listen there to verses 13 through 16 again. Paul says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, 
insolent opponent. And by saying that, Paul's identifying himself with what Paul lays out there in verses 8 through 11. He's identifying himself with sinners, the wrongdoers, whom the law was meant to show the way to God, forcing them to see their own sin and God's pronouncement of judgment so they might fall in repentance upon his grace. Paul's identifying himself with sinners. I, a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent of the king, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The greatest zeal, the greatest sincerity will not save you. Paul acted with great zeal, with great sincerity, serving God. But he was wrong. In that time, as we know from Acts, he was persecuting Jesus himself. That's exactly the words of Jesus. Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But I received mercy, Paul says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed this overwhelming torrent. It overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he states that central truth of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then we hear again, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience for you. For me. Paul is saying two things here. First, there is every reason to believe the gospel truth and its power because I have experienced it. It has transformed my life. Twice, Paul says, but I received mercy. I received mercy. Paul's experience of God's grace is confirming evidence. It's validating evidence of its transformative power that transforms a sinner into a saint, a persecutor into a priest. And second, there is hope. Not only does his experience confirm the power and truth of the gospel, but it gives hope for every sinner because no one's sin, no one's sin or no one sin, however you want to read that, is, is greater than God's mercy. Jesus is not vindictive. He has perfect patience. And he tells us that by the way he treated Paul. By the way he saved Paul. He is perfectly patient, even to someone like Paul, who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of his. And it is hope and comfort that Thomas Bilney, an influential martyr of the English Reformation, who was responsible for the conversion of Hugh Latimer, that great Anglican preacher of the Reformation, and also martyr, Bilney wrote of this passage, this one sentence, referring to verse 15 here, this one sentence through God's instruction and inward working did so exhilarate my heart before being wounded, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately, even immediately, I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. Who was reading the lectionary that Sunday morning? Who was listening to it being read? Thomas Bilney. That's a reference, bones leaping for joy from Psalm 51. After this, 
he says, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. You see, Bilney came to understand this truth along with Paul, that for those united to King Jesus, there is no more room for despair. It is no longer, it is no longer welcomed in our lives. Because Jesus' mercy, as we sung, is more. It's more. His mercy is greater than our sin. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5 when he says, But where sin increased, where sin increased, grace abounded. It overflowed all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. That's the life of the coming kingdom of God that we can experience now in part. This life comes to us through King Jesus our Lord. You see, there's no flood wall that sin could possibly build that God's grace cannot overwhelm and overflow. That's the beautiful and awesome power of God's grace and mercy. It knows no limit. It knows no boundary. There is no shore of your life over which it cannot flood. And God not only outstrips and overpowers our sin, but he instills within us the visible signs of a graced life. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, the faith and love. I receive the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And all this leads Paul to the ends of the chiasm. The beginning and the ending here that we see in verse 12 and verse 17. And Paul responds. He, couldn't, he cannot help himself. In both cases, at the beginning and the end, he responds to God's grace and mercy by providing these bookends of thanksgiving and doxology. And by beginning and dealing with gratitude and praise, Paul declares that the Christian life, once birthed by the mercy and grace of God, is a life from beginning to end defined by worship. By giving glory and honor to God for all. For all that he's done. To save us. To bring about his new creation. To unite us together with his son. To bind us together in family bonds of kinship. What else do you propose to do other than to say thank you and to say all honor and glory and praise be to you, King of Ages? Christ Church, if, if we're to endure the internal and external pressures that seek to draw us away from the truth of the gospel in our age, just as Paul was addressing this small church, this young church, in Ephesus, if we are to endure what's to, what seeks to draw us away, then we must with gratitude. That is one of the key hallmarks of the Christian life, gratitude. We must with gratitude proclaim God's praises and his glory when we gather here in this place and when we scatter from here. So we don't just praise God here. Well, we must praise him when we scatter from here into our homes and neighborhoods, into our workplaces and the various places we find ourselves throughout the week. 
And we are able by God's Spirit who indwells us to do that. We're able to turn our lives, every part of them, in worship into worship when we come to know Jesus better and allow him to reshape our very identity into the children, the people of God. Who are not forsaken, but are loved, forgiven, saved, strengthened, and showered with overflowing and overwhelming grace and mercy that comes to us from King Jesus. And we are able to do this with his help. So whatever the future may hold, if we neglect our deepest need, the need to know Jesus better and to have him refashion us, refashion our lives, our families, and our communities, then we will eventually cave into a hostile culture and follow the path of least resistance. If we obscure this truth, if we overshadow it with something else, or if we contradict it altogether, So we must tell ourselves over and over again the true story of our king who did not cave in the face of hostility but remained faithful to God's call and mission for his life, even unto death, so that he might save sinners like you and me and restore our broken world, making it new again, because that's where it's all heading. For when Jesus and the story of his goodness Mercy and grace are proclaimed and reenacted in gratitude and praise. It will seep into the rest of our lives. What we do here over and over again with the same old beautiful liturgy that retells us this central truth, it will begin to seep. If we submit ourselves to it and to God and his spirit in us, it will begin to seep into every part of our lives. His name will be spoken around our dinner tables And even in our workplaces, he will be shown to be our hope, our very public hope, not a private hope, but a public one, even as hostility may rise. And so let's encourage each other to reinvest our everyday speech with the language of worship, of thanksgiving and praise, and to speak of Jesus as if he really matters in a real world. And so as we come to this table in just a few moments to hear again the story of overwhelming and overflowing mercy and grace and to see it reenacted before our eyes, let us in our hearts and through our voices erupt with raucous gratitude and boisterous praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom be all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.